Good evening, Rua Church. Uh, I would invite you to join me in Luke chapter 9 in your Bibles. I'm Alexander. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going to do now what we do every week uh, and resume our exposition of Luke. We will be in verse 18 of chapter 9. And I would invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18, says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others one of the prophets of old that has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them to tell this to no one, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. As we uh, continue our exposition of Luke's gospel, uh, we now find ourselves in uh, a section that is answering a question which has been progressively asked throughout the, uh, the preceding chapters and sections. The question uh, is, who then is this? Who is this Christ? Who is Jesus? And the answers have come in a myriad of ways, and I think this text Uh, begins to clarify and uh, solidify Luke's answer to the question of who is this. Now, I must admit to you on the front end, before we get into the text, uh, there's a bit of a problem with how we've read the text and broken it up, and that is that uh, this is really the uh, the first half of a broader section, And that section actually continues into verse 23 and goes down uh, to verse 27. Uh, And these sections are linked. So in separating them, we're doing something a bit artificial. Uh, And I just want to say that to you on the front end because next week, you're going to need to bring in the understanding of these verses uh, when we get to the section starting in verse 23. Uh, And that section really is based upon uh, the teaching here through verse 22 that uh, they've professed Jesus to be Christ. And then Jesus clarifies what it means for him to be the Christ. And then he begins to clarify what does it mean for someone to be a disciple of Christ. Now, these things are all linked together. So in separating them, we're doing something a little bit artificial. But uh, you probably don't have the endurance, nor do I have the the stamina to preach all that needs to be preached in these verses. So for that reason, we're splitting them artificially. But I want you to know they are a unified text together. And so with that being said, all of what is uh, being communicated here will be relevant for the teaching on discipleship. So then the question, well, what is this week? What is the main idea of what's going on? And we can probably summarize it in two words, uh, confession and instruction. When you see uh, the text as it's been put before us here, uh, you see the confession of the apostles by the voice of Peter, and then the instruction that follows that uh, from the mouth of Jesus. And these things kind of come together uh, to teach us more clearly about who the Christ is and all that uh, is relative uh, for a disciple to know about him. That being said, uh, let's look again with uh, uh, new eyes and fresh eyes at verse 18, and let's start our time in the Word there. We see that uh, it says, Now that it happened, as he was praying alone, his disciples were with him. 
Now this, uh, this first clause is something that picks up on uh, what we were introduced to uh, last week. Last week, before Jesus is interrupted uh, by the crowds, remember they set out on a journey, him and his disciples, to go alone to pray. This is uh, following the ministry that the disciples had together. The 12 are sent out two by two into various villages. They do a great many miracles. And then uh, they come back to Jesus and they report to him all that has happened. And then we're told that Jesus says, perfect. Now let's go and quiet and we're going to pray. We're going to be alone. And we're essentially going to rest and recover. And now they attempt to do that. And last week we're told that they get actually interrupted by the crowds. The crowds find out where they were going. They interrupt them and Jesus welcomes the interruption. But we see that it has not deterred the overall mission of Jesus and his disciples to get alone and to pray. Now, this is something that should not be lost on us, the amount of times that Luke emphasizes prayer in his gospel. And Luke does not emphasize prayer as simply being important for a disciple of Jesus. He actually emphasizes prayer as first being important for Jesus himself in his ministry. Now, this might seem strange to us because when we think about Jesus, I think often the kind of narrative that surrounds it is that Jesus was fully God and he was truly God, but he was also truly man. And so we, but we tend to squash his humanity and say, well, since he was truly God, he probably didn't need to pray. Uh, all the other things that he does that seem human-like are actually just him relating to humans. Now that's actually a false idea. He, he needs rest, he needs sleep, he needs prayer, he needs food. Uh, we know all these things and the, the gospel writers are communicating this to us clearly. And I think it should not be lost on us that uh, when Jesus is praying alone, he's not doing so merely as an example for his followers. He's actually doing so probably to sustain himself, probably to sustain his encouragement, his strength, his, his ministry is going at a, a rapid pace right now in Luke's gospel. And he's just crowds following him. There's controversy surrounding him. Uh, any human would be exhausted by that kind of thing. And Jesus is a human. He, he would be exhausted by that pace of ministry. And so he finds it necessary to retreat and to pray. Now, the reason I point that all out is because I think uh, one of the things we struggle with, especially in the Western church, is some kind of reliance on prayer. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that we don't believe in prayer, at least theologically, but I think that functionally, when it comes to our day-to-day -day life, our patterns of rest and work, we don't incorporate prayer as part of the rest component. We usually consider it generally in the work category. So if you're a disciple and you're going to commit yourself to disciplining yourself to grow in holiness and grow in knowledge of the Lord, we put prayer almost in the same category as study of scripture, almost in the same category as reading theology. And prayer is a discipline, but it's actually a discipline for our benefit in the same way that the Sabbath rest was a part of the law that needed to be upheld, but it's actually for the benefit of the Jewish people to uphold it. It's a restful component of their daily discipline. And prayer is so for the Christian. Prayer is a regular discipline, but it's one that's actually for our good, for our rest. Prayer is something that we do uh, for God to commune with him, but it's actually a benefit to us that rests our souls, revitalizes us, and gives us strength to face the day and face the coming weeks and challenges that we have. Uh, prayer is not primarily something we do as work towards God, but it's actually something we do to commune with God and essentially replenish ourselves. Now, the reason I point all of that out is because it should not surprise us that Jesus, after a high clip of ministry, needs rest and needs prayer. It also shouldn't surprise us that he does this as a model for his disciples so that they, who after have, having done all this amazing ministry work, now need rest and need prayer with God. And it shouldn't uh, surprise us that this uh, is the thing that precedes 
the clarity about who Jesus is and the confession that follows. Prayer is something that's noted here by Luke, and immediately afterwards, the disciples are told to have essentially the clarity of mind, the clarity of understanding, to confess truly who Jesus is. Now, those things should not be separated because Luke doesn't separate them. He actually introduces prayer as essentially the pretext for the rest of the unfolding events. Now, we're told all of these things uh, simply to say this, that uh, Jesus is praying, he's praying alone, and his disciples are there with him. Now, it's not clear whether they're praying with him or they're in a separate space praying and he's on his own praying, kind of like what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. But we're told that they're praying, they're uh, probably reflecting on scripture, praying it uh, to God. And now uh, Jesus takes this time, this, this moment of isolation, this moment of rest, and he goes to his disciples and he says, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, he doesn't ask who do the people say that I am. He's asking the disciples a specific question, the crowds that have been following Jesus, right? The crowds that have been kind of going from town to town with him and, and watching his teaching ministry, watching his healings, who do those people say that I am? Now, this is a little bit more narrow than who do the people in general say that I am, because these are people who essentially have been around Jesus and have seen what he has done. This is uh, a, equivalent to the group of people that we find in John chapter 6 that has the chief, let's say, controversy over Jesus and who he is. This is that group of people. He's asking, who does that group of people say that I am? What do they say about me? People who've seen him, who've heard his teaching, and who are forming their own conclusions. And the disciples answer the question essentially uh, by saying, well, something we've already heard in Luke's gospel. Uh, if you go back a couple of verses, you'll see this is the same report given to Herod about the ministry of Jesus. But the, the saying goes like this. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets who has arisen of old. Now, we talked about this last time when it was mentioned in Luke's gospel. It shouldn't surprise us that there's a, a varying number of responses to who Jesus is. Now, if you think it's strange for everyone to look at the same group of evidence, the same teaching, the same facts, if you will, and form varying conclusions, then it's likely that you're thinking about this from a Christian assumption of these texts and not necessarily from a human assumption about these things. So let's uh, remove the, the scripture from it and we'll just ask a different question. When we look at events in the world that happen and we are given the same information, the same facts, the same evidence, do people uniformly come to the same conclusions about those facts? Now, if you think uh, about a, a myriad of events that we would assume, let's say, are well-proven, well-documented, uh, you might be surprised to find out that there's actually people who would disagree with you about those common assumptions. For instance, uh, some time ago, before I was born and probably before some of you were born, uh, the United States launched astronauts onto the moon and landed it. And there was a photo taken, and there were people who confirmed these things through radio communication, and there was millions and uh, tons of money poured into this project, and there's documentation surrounding it. There were news reports and interviews and newspaper articles reporting these events. And when we look now, let's say 20, 30, 40 years after those events have happened in the preceding time, if you were to go to anyone and you were to say, do you think the moon landing was real? You would find people who would disagree with you on the evidence. They would look at the same evidence, the same interviews, the same photographs, the same uh, articles, the same money that was poured in by the government into the project, and they would say, we think this is all a hoax. Same evidence, same, let's say, undeniable proof, different conclusions, because this is who humans are as people. We tend to re read into evidence our assumptions about things. We fit it into our worldview. 
So people who are suspicious of the government, who are suspicious of uh, higher powers that control funding and control these things, they're suspicious of their claims, including claims that are hard to discount, such as the moon landing. Uh, there's other people who would look at the same evidence that we have, uh, that you grew up in science class learning about the geometry of the Earth, and people would say, no, 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 I'm looking at the same evidence, the same data, I don't think the Earth is round, I think the Earth is actually flat. Now, if you think that's crazy, you haven't talked to enough people yet, because people actually believe this stuff. My point is not to, let's say, discourage those people. My point is simply this. People looking at the same body of evidence, the same basic facts, the same body of data, will form different conclusions about that data. So when we look in Luke's gospel and we see that people are confused about who Jesus is, we should not conclude that Jesus has been confusing about who he's telling himself to be, or that the disciples were confusing about who they were telling the Christ to be. We should probably rightly conclude that there's a whole lot of conspiracies going around concerning Elijah, concerning other prophets, other assumptions in the background that are informing how people are interpreting the data about Jesus. For instance, look at the claim of being, him being John the Baptist. Now, Luke has told us that Jesus and John the Baptist are closely linked together. In fact, the first three chapters of Luke's gospel are dedicated to an interplay between the birth of John the Baptist being announced, the birth of Jesus being announced, the birth of John the Baptist happening, the birth of Jesus happening, and all to show us that they're actually linked very closely together. He actually concludes by telling us in Luke chapter 3 that John the Baptist was present with Jesus at the same time and that he baptized Jesus. So when you're reading this, you can conclude these are two different people, right? Now, other people who are following Jesus' in ministry would not have necessarily not known that information. But when now, looking after the death of John the Baptist, looking at the ministry of Jesus, they're concluding this is John the Baptist. He's preaching the same kingdom of God. And that's probably the only carryover data that we have between Jesus and John the Baptist. And so what you're seeing is not people looking at the evidence neutrally. You're looking at people who, let's say, know John the Baptist, know his teaching, are closely correlating that with Jesus and saying, this is who it must be. They're interpreting the data based on their assumptions. That's not too far from the truth, right? John the Baptist is preaching the same kingdom of God, the same repent and believe, the same that if you're a Pharisee, it doesn't matter, you need to actually believe yourself and repent, right? This is the same message that both John and Jesus are preaching. But the difference is, John is preaching about Jesus, and Jesus is preaching about himself and his kingdom, right? So there's nuances. So we shouldn't believe that Jesus was unclear in his communication. We could rightly conclude that the people have taken the information and assumed something different has happened. Now let's look at the second uh, person that is named here. It says, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. So let's say the dominant theory is it's John the Baptist, but other people who are deviating from this dominant theory they think this is Elijah. Now, why would they think it's Elijah? Well, uh, in the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, there's a prophecy about Elijah who comes as a forerunner for God, essentially a forerunner for the Christ to inaugurate the kingdom of God into the world. And so some people, when they were looking at John the Baptist's ministry, conclude, hey, this guy must be Elijah, reincarnate in the flesh. And that's actually a true assumption that uh, he is in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Jesus actually clarifies that to his disciples. So when the people are looking at the evidence about Jesus and they're concluding he must be Elijah, that's actually not too far from reality, right? He's, uh, Elijah was prophesied in the Old Testament to be a prophet that's going to come again. Now, it clarifies for us in the text that it's not actually Elijah. It's someone who comes in the same way that Elijah came, proclaiming the truth and rebuking wicked rulers. So the text clarifies that for us. 
And it, it shouldn't be too far off for someone who's paying close attention to the Old Testament to say, this person's doing miraculous things. He's doing significant signs and wonders. Maybe this is the prophet who was previously told to us. So that's not too far from the truth. The difference is John the Baptist was the Elijah figure in Malachi chapter 4. And so this is, while close to the truth, not, not, it's not ignoring all the evidence, it's just squashing some of the evidence and magnifying some of the evidence, right? So we look at this and we say, okay, it's, it's let's say, a logical conclusion, but it's, it's ignoring some of the relevant data, such as the fact that Jesus doesn't call himself Elijah, uh, and his disciples would have, let's say, denied this claim if they were to ask him point blank. So uh, Elijah is one of the s- surrounding theories. And then you have a, a third theory. This is probably the safe theory. Uh, we're not going to say which prophet. We're not going to specify. But he's probably one of the prophets of old, right? This is, let's say, the safe option, right? <laughs> we're not going to throw all our eggs in the Elijah basket. We're not excluding that. Uh, but, you know, we're open to him also being Moses, also being Isaiah, also being Ezekiel. We're just not sure. We're just not going to call balls and strikes on that. But we're sure that he's a prophet, right? He's one of the prophets of old come again to call Israel to repentance. Now, looking at the data, we might say, well, that's strange that people would assume this. But again, it's because people can do with evidence what they assume uh, and what they're concluding and how they're drawing the connection. So they look at the same evidence, the same teaching of the kingdom, the same call to repentance, and they conclude something different than these other groups have concluded. Now, if you're then asking the question, well, is this because the people are concluding individually and not necessarily talking together amongst themselves and comparing various theories? That's probably not the case, right? You were to say, let's say Jesus comes today and he is doing all these things and his disciples are doing this ministry and they're doing all this miraculous works. They would be on talk shows, there would be TV interviews, there would be excerpts coming out of the woodworks, and it'd be on podcasts. Everyone would be talking about this thing, and there would be no shortage of theories about who these people are. Every time a significant event happens, you can get some people who will have a group of experts that will agree with their assumptions, and some people with a group of experts that will agree with their assumptions, and they'll all be talking about the same events, the same data, and all resoundly conclude different things. So it's not like people aren't talking amongst themselves, it's not like the crowd hasn't shared their theories with one another but these theories continue to persist. So that's strange. The crowds looking at Jesus' ministry conclude things about Jesus' ministry that we would say, looking at the evidence that we've looked at so far in Luke's gospel, now this seems a bit off base from the truth. But now Jesus does something different. He's going to pivot and he's going to say, okay, I've heard the evidence of the crowds. I know now that you're aware of the varying theories about who I am. Now he's going to pivot and he's going to say, but what about you? What about you? What do, what do you say about me? Who do you say that I am? So he takes the question, the broad question, and makes it personal to now his disciples. Okay, we're aware of the theories about what the crowds say. Now, where would you lay your claim? What would you say about me? And this answer is one of the more famous lines in Scripture. In fact, in the various Gospels, it's kind of reported differently. The response is slightly different. But the summary here in Luke, I think, is, is very apt. Peter speaks up, probably not Peter alone, but probably Peter as a spokesperson for the 12, speaks up and he says, the Christ of God. Now, if you're thinking, well, this seems like a small kind of statement. We would have liked him to say he's God. We would have liked him to say maybe something more robust. If you're, if you're looking at the first century uh, Palestinian context that they're in, to call Jesus Christ is to say something profound about who he is and what he is like. Now, if you don't believe me on that, actually remember the angels t- 
talk about Jesus, they come to the shepherds and they say, this is the Savior, this is the Christ, this is the Lord. So the angels think that Christ is a sufficiently narrow definition about who Jesus is. And in the first century, it's a very narrow definition. We don't have uh, people speculating that the Christ is different for Israel and the universal church. We don't have people caveating that he's Christ and not God. These things come later down the line throughout the ages. Jesus is asking them specifically, who do you say that I am? And they answer, Christ, the Christ of God. And so we can then ask, well, what is in this confession? What is in this statement? Well, the first thing to note is the statement Christ carries with it, like I said, a narrow definition. So what is that definition? Well, the Christ in the Old Covenant is predicted and prophesied to be the ruling authority of God on earth. He is the one who's going to inaugurate God's kingdom. He's going to rescue the Jewish people from their enemies. He's going to put all of God's enemies under the authority of God. And he's going to rule and reign over the Jewish people, essentially in Zion. This is who the Christ is told to be. And not only Jewish people, actually the Christ is someone who receives worship from all the nations. This is the one who essentially brings in the peace that Israel has been longing for, uh, that God has predicted for them. They're not only going to be restored, but they're going to be restored in a much better way than they were ever prophesied to have been restored before. This is who the Christ is. Now that is, let's say, partially true. Most of the data says the Christ is the king, that he's the Lord, he will rule and reign over the people. There's other texts that talk about the Christ, and they talk about the Christ more so in a uh, suffering kind of way. That he has to, yes, the other texts are true, but they emphasize not his ruling authority, they emphasize his suffering work that he does on behalf of the people of Israel so that the people of Israel can be once again united with God. Because there's a problem in Israel, which is, okay, if God restores the people back, one of the stipulations of the new covenant is the people are cleansed of their sin. Now, how does this happen? Well, it happens by a suffering servant dying on behalf of the people and essentially paying the debt that they owe towards God so that they can once again be in relationship with him. So there's those two different bodies of evidence in the Old Testament. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that when the Christ is assumed in this context, the dominant definition that has won out in this day is that first definition. The Christ is the royal authority, the king, the military power who will rescue Israel and defeat their political enemies. He's going to destroy Rome. He's going to kick out all the surrounding people groups. He's going to surely deal with the Samaritans. He's going to deal with all of them. And the Jewish people are going to be found vindicated. This is the dominant interpretation about the messianic passages in the Old Testament. But again, it's amplifying some of the data, which is true data, but it's squashing some of the other data, namely the unsavory parts about him suffering and dying on behalf of the sins of the people of Israel. So when they confess that he's Christ, Jesus actually wants to make sure that they know what they've just said. So they, there's this confession, and now here's an instruction from Jesus to clarify all that has just been said. So he first warns them. He says, okay, don't say anything about this to anyone else. And then he's going to say, just so you know, it is necessary for the Son of Man to face rejection at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and that he would be killed, and that he would be resurrected on the third day. This is necessary. Jesus is clarifying what has just been spoken. Because the Christ profession carries with it a certain emphasis, a certain baggage, and Jesus is just making sure they have the right balance on this confession. 
What's interesting is in the other gospel accounts of this, Peter actually shortly after Jesus says this actually says, no, 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 it must not be so. So Peter has bought into definition number one about who the Christ is. He's the royal kingly authority. But Peter has ignored some of the other evidence. And this is something that he has to grow in over time being discipled by Jesus. But notice what Jesus says about the Christ. He says, it is necessary that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He doesn't say one of the potential outcomes for the Son of Man on this earth in his ministry is that he suffers. He doesn't say it's, it's, a, it's an open possibility if the people reject him, but if the people accept him, different outcome. He's saying it is necessary, or the Son of Man must suffer many things. Or another way to put it is the inevitable outcome for the Son of Man in his earthly ministry is for him to face rejection, to be put to death, and to raise again on the third day. This tells us something about the understanding of Jesus, about his earthly ministry, his work. He doesn't think that this, this is going to end well for him. Because the Christ has been identified as him, and the Christ figure in Daniel 7 is identified with the Son of Man. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man after the profession of Christ, he's linking the two together. He's saying the Son of Man, before he gets all dominion and all authority and all power and all worship, he must first endure what we call the passion, the suffering, the humiliation of the Christ. Now this might be a strange thing for us to hear that this would be a foreign teaching to the ears of the Israelites, but this is a foreign teaching because the dominant emphasis, again in this day, is not that Jesus won't, is not that the Christ will suffer, the dominant emphasis is that he will be a military power. So when Jesus swings in this direction and balances the military power language with language from Isaiah 53 and language from Psalm 118, the rejection of the cornerstone, he's balancing the understanding of the Messiah and he's saying this is what it must be like. Now why must it be so? Well, theologians have had lots of time to think about this. Why must it be so that the Christ does these things? And the conclusion is what we would dominantly call the penal substitutionary atonement that Christ does on behalf of mankind. Now that is all fancy language to say that Jesus dies in the place of sinful humanity. He dies as our representative and takes on the punishment as our representative. This is why it must be that he suffers, faces rejection, and dies because humanity deserves to suffer, face rejection, and die. And so Jesus must suffer, face uh, persecution at the hands of the Jewish people. He must die, and then it is necessary after he dies, because he's in fact righteous, for him to be raised again from the dead. This is all necessary. It's plan A of redemption for God in eternity past to save his people by this means. Now, if you're looking at this and you're saying, well, this is all good and well, but why is it that if this was so clear in the Jewish scripture, why is it that the elders and the chief priests and the scribes all reject Jesus because he's the suffering Messiah? Why is it that they all miss the mark? The best theologians, this, by the way, this group makes up the Sanhedrin, the 71 that oversee the Jewish people and rule over them. This is the best of the best priests. This is the best of the best elders, which means Jewish people who serve on the council, lay Jewish men, and then the scribes, which are their theologians. So why is it that the theologians of the day, the people who serve regularly in priestly ministry, and the lay Jewish elders, why is it that they're all going to reject the Christ? If, if what I'm saying is so clear, if Jesus is saying it's so clear, why is it that this 
is ignored and rejected. Well, one of the things we have to understand is that after these prophecies have come about, we've had about 400 years of intervening time between the prophecies kind of concluding and us picking up into the scene of Jesus' earthly ministry. And in that intervening time, the theologians and the Jewish elders and the Jewish priests have had plenty of time to consider well, what is the Christ going to be like? And there's varying theories and there's various priests and various theologians who would, who would go back and forth and they debate these things. What is the Christ like? What must he do? What's his dominant emphasis? And they look at the evidence of his prophecies and they tend to overemphasize some of it and they tend to underemphasize some of it. And some of the theories pick up popular steam and eventually over generations of this happening, the theory that wins out is that the Christ comes back essentially in a moment, restores the Jewish people to Israel and squashes all their enemies. And the prophecies that have to do with the suffering are tended to be downplayed by the scribes. It's not to say that they're not there, the scribes aren't aware of them, they're just downplaying them. Now, if you're saying, well, you know, certainly something like that wouldn't happen today. How many of you know about the president, uh, John F. Kennedy? You know that president's name. What would you say generally if I was to ask you about the moral character of John F. Kennedy? Most of you, if you've just, let's say, been exposed to a general swath of American history, would say, good president, untimely death. He was generally good for the American people, had an untimely death. And that's because largely in his life, that's what was reported about him in the media and by the public sphere. Some of the evidence about his life was magnified, and other evidences of his life, the less savory bits that people didn't really know what to do with, were squashed by the media. Namely, that he was regularly addicted to prescription drugs, such as opiates, that he had numerous affairs outside of his precious wife, and that he not only had many presidential disasters, but also had many allegations and scandals present in his life. Now, why is it that all of those things have been lost to history? Well, we tend to think romantically about people who we admire and we look up to, and some of the data about them gets pushed to the side, and other data gets amplified, until eventually, after generations of this happening, you have young American children who grow up in the school system learning history and learning all the positive aspects of JFK and usually not so much of the negative aspects. The same can be said about Martin Luther King Jr. The same can be said actually about many of the founding fathers, that you have these things that are amplified and these things that are squashed to the side. Now it shouldn't surprise us that if that can happen today, that happened in the prophecies of the Messiah, that some of the data was amplified to the parts that they liked and they wanted to be true and the parts that they weren't so sure what to do with and weren't so sure what this would do to the overall message of the Messiah that they kind of push down and de-emphasize. And so this is the setting that the disciples are in. And so when they profess Jesus to be the Christ of God, Jesus clarifies, by the way, did you know, to balance what you've probably heard and grown up hearing about the Christ, that there's passages that talk about him necessarily suffering, facing rejection, dying, and then being resurrected. And this is where Luke kind of concludes this part of the teaching. Now, this is not to be, like I said, separated from what follows in Luke's gospel, but let's just pause for a moment and ask the question, what is the uh, abiding significance of Jesus correcting the disciples' understanding about his suffering? Why might it be the case that he does this? Why does he correct them? Well, there's many things that we can speculate on with this. Uh, we can think about, uh, well, this is actually who Jesus is. He's not the coming king, the royal authority. He's actually the suffering Messiah, because this is what he emphasizes. Well, we haven't gotten to the passages in Luke where he actually emphasizes the fact that he will come in power and in might. But to this point, we are right in saying that Luke has emphasized, and Jesus, by his own teaching, has emphasized now the suffering 
nature of the Messiah. He's correcting what is dominant in his cultural understanding of who the Christ is. So, he tells the disciples that the Christ must face all these things. And this is not, he's not going to stop telling them. He's going to kind of continue to tell them this stuff all the way until he's actually suffering and is rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests. And when he is crucified and killed, and then he resurrects on the third day. And he tells them this exact basic message several times in Luke's gospel. They always miss it. Or maybe they always hear it and then shortly after forget it. Because by the time the crucifixion comes and the persecution comes and the suffering comes for the Christ, the disciples scatter. Because they cannot accept that Christ, if he was who he said he was going to be, would suffer in this way. He's supposed to be the king. He's not supposed to die. This is supposed to end in a seizing of the power structures in Jerusalem, not death at the hand of the power structure in Jerusalem. So he teaches them this to balance their understanding. And we know that this is necessary because they actually have a misunderstanding by the fact that they all scatter when he's going to be persecuted and put to death. Now, that's not to say they all scatter because actually the women stay right by his side. Now, they don't, it's not to say that they perfectly understood this as they ought to have, but at least they stick to the side of Jesus. The disciples here who are present, uh, they largely abandon ship when the persecution comes. So the correction of Jesus, let's say, is warranted, it's necessary, and it's going to bear repeating throughout the gospel. But what is this clarification about who Jesus is? Uh, what is this for us today? Right? Largely, you're not going to bump into Christians who would say, no, 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 Jesus didn't need to suffer and die. Well, actually, you might. Because much of what we're looking at now, the necessity of the suffering and dying of Jesus, is actually debated today among theologians. People who look at the same New Testament that you look at, who look at the same Old Testament prophecies will say, uh, the suffering of Jesus was, let's say, an unfortunate outcome of the Jewish people rejecting him. But we cannot say that God necessarily willed it to come into place this way because that would make God guilty of something equivalent to uh, cosmic abuse of his son because it is necessary that the son would suffer, face rejection, and die. So learned theologians today even would reject the necessity of, of this claim. So we need to let Jesus speak for himself. I think the other thing that would be strange for us is the other balance of who the Messiah is, that he's the king, the authority, the ruling Lord over all creation. Now that's something that tends to get downplayed. Some people seize the suffering idea of the Messiah and they run with that and they ignore the kingly parts. And they say that really a disciple of Jesus must suffer like he suffered and we should really never hope for any kind of future establishment of royal kingship. Well, that ignores the Jesus who's otherwise revealed to us in Luke's gospel and who comes in Revelation 19 in power and might and authority punishing his enemies and vindicating his people. This is uh, more equivalent to a Jesus that people are not so comfortable with. So all this is to say that uh, while it is necessary that the Christ be this, it's also necessary for us to allow Jesus to correct our theological assumptions about him. We know that the disciples confessed him to be Christ, and we also know that them confessing him to be Christ is, a, let's say, a good foundation, but not yet a complete understanding of who the Christ is. And they need to grow in understanding who the Christ really is. Now, this is actually true, not just of the 12, but of every disciple of Jesus. When you grow up in church and you learn the stories about Jesus, you learn certain emphases, certain dominating motifs, certain things. And then maybe, you know, when you're older and you're starting to read scripture for the first time, you're seeing things 
in the text that are not necessarily squaring up with maybe what you've been taught. And you need to be okay with, let's say, saying, I had a wrong assumption on this thing, maybe because of my own assumption or because of something someone taught me. I need to be willing to let Jesus, by his own words, by his own teaching, by the Apostle Paul and his teaching, I need to be willing to let that correct my theological understanding about who Christ is. Now, this is not to say that our theological understanding of Christ will be ever shifting, but we need to be willing to let his words speak for themselves and correct maybe our assumptions about him. We live in the West, we have certain assumptions about Christ. We tend to emphasize the grace and the love, and not so much the wrath and the justice, but Christ is actually both of those things. If you read the gospel, he's a wrathful God who's coming again to judge the world, and he's the merciful God who stands in the place of sinners and forgives people who seemingly don't deserve it. Both are true, and both need to, let's say, coincide with our theology. We can't squash some passages and amplify others just because we prefer some and, and not others. This is kind of true throughout the whole life of a disciple, that we need to be willing to let the word of God correct our theological assumptions about the Christ. We're just like the apostles in that we, we have these assumptions. And we need to be willing, let's say, to confess that we were wrong or we misemphasize something. That's an okay thing because we're not supposed to be infallible. We're actually, by nature of being disciples, supposed to follow after him, which means being corrected often. The passage omitted here by Luke actually shows Peter being corrected by Jesus for denying this confession about who the Christ is. So that's certainly one thing that we could say. Now let's say uh, the other piece, which is uh, we need to let Jesus speak for himself about who the Christ is. This is something I think is dominantly true today because just like we talked about, you know, many people forming various theories given, let's say, the same body of evidence, there are also many people today with the same amount of confusion about Christ. You would have thought that after the writings of the Gospels, the clarification of Paul, the clarification of James, the clarification of John, that all of these debates and disputes that were present in the day of the Pharisees, these would largely have gone by the wayside. No one thinks he's John the Baptist. No one thinks he's a prophet from of old. And actually, a couple hundred years after the church is founded, someone comes around and says, actually, Jesus was a prophet of God. He wasn't really the son of God. And he's actually the prophet for a different religion. And this religion abides even today. Jesus was a prophet of Allah. He was not the son of God. So if you think confusion is just something limited to first century Jewish people, and that this gets clarified when Jesus resurrects from the grave, actually that's when more confusion kicks off. You have confusion such as, well, this is Jesus, he's God, but he's different from the Old Testament God. This is confusion that kicks off misunderstandings about who Christ is. You even have uh, people today who would say, well, Jesus is the Christ, but what that really means is he's not God and he's not quite like God, he's sub-God, creation of God, something to be venerated, but not, uh, he's not God. This is a misunderstanding about the text. Confusion, looking at the same evidence, the same texts, the same verses, the same resurrection, same body and corpus of beliefs and facts, different conclusions. So that clarification and that confusion is still present. The clarification is necessary. This is the job of the church and disciples of Jesus, to rightly understand who he is and to clarify that to other people, both first to ourselves and then uh, to the world as we go about and we make disciples. We're supposed to teach them and instruct them all of what Jesus commanded us, including being able to recognize that just because someone says he's Christ doesn't mean that they understand what that means. Sometimes we say, uh, because we, we love simple faith, we, we say that if someone confesses him to be Christ, certainly that's good enough, that's in. They believe the gospel. And that could be true, that could be true. 
That's not to say they need to be able to fully unpack that theologically and recite the Nicene Creed in order to understand that. But let's say someone says, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He was Christ. And you ask them a follow-up question and go, well, do you believe he was God? And they say, no, I'm not so sure about that. Well, now you have a, a misunderstanding, a misemphasis. The same term Christ has been used, but a different definition is understood. Now it's the disciples' job to enter in and begin to clarify this by pointing to scripture, by pointing to prophecy, by looking at the whole counsel of God's word and saying, can you see that the Christ actually is God in the Old Testament? The Christ is not just uh, the Davidic figure. He's not just a human, but he's also God. And we need to be able to do that work. There's also people who go uh, in the first century church and they say, well, certainly Jesus is Christ. He's the son of God, but he's not, he's not God. So this is not something new in, in our generation. This is something that has been abounding for now 2,000 years about. So just because time has resolved and, and the same evidence is available does not mean people will arrive at the same conclusions. That's even true today. And then I think uh, one of the last pieces to, to look at here is this dominating emphasis on the suffering of Christ, this dominating, let's say, uh, theology about his necessary suffering, I think is something that should not be lost on us because this is a suffering that we're told elsewhere in scripture happens on behalf of humanity. So as soon as we begin to squash the necessity of God's suffering and Jesus' suffering at the hands of the people of the Jewish high council and the Romans, and ultimately by the will of God, we begin to push down a theology that deals with sin in all of its vulgarity and all of its wickedness. And we begin to say, no, no, he's the ruling king, he's the resurrected king, and we're going to ignore the part about the crucifixion because that's bloody and messy, and we're not quite so sure what to do with a God who uh, is put to death on the cross. Well, we need to be willing to let Jesus correct our theology on that. And be willing to see the, the wickedness of sin that necessitates the suffering of the Savior. If Christ needed to suffer, and the language in the text is explicit, he needed to. If that is true, then that means that our sin, when we go before God, is actually uh, demanding of this kind of a punishment, a death penalty. And when we look at our sin, we can't sniff at it casually and say, not a problem, God will forgive me in his grace. We need to look at it with the seriousness that it demands. Namely to say that our sin is worthy of suffering and being put to death. And if we can square that away and say that, but we trust Christ on our stead to have dealt with our sin before God and to actually have resurrected from the grave in vindication that he paid in full for our sin, well, this is good news because Romans 10 tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord and we believe in our heart that Christ raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And that's amazing that we can access all of the blessings incurred by the resurrection, not by suffering how Jesus suffered, because we could never suffer that same way, not by uh, doing a great number of good works, which Jesus did perfectly in his lifetime. Uh, we actually can access all of the benefits purchased here by believing in him as Lord and following him and holding fast to the end. This is how we incur all these benefits. Now that is scandalous. And that is something that I think dominantly uh, is something we, we're so quick to want to add something to. We want to say, well, you know, we can believe and we also need to perfectly obey and then we will be saved. Well, yes, but we can't add the obedience into the faith component as though that is a dual purchase of God's meritorious work on our behalf. We can't add things to the faith 
Because if we do so, we, we put ourselves in the place of the suffering. We say, well, our good works, our, our suffering as well is incurred with Christ. We suffer with him. And this is meritorious for our salvation as well. Now, this would be a dangerous thing. The Christ suffers alone. The Christ suffers and faces rejection alone and resurrects alone and purchases that resurrection for all who follow after him. Now, again, all of these emphases need to be balanced by what we're going to look at next week. But suffice it to say that the work of Jesus is in one way completely solitary. It's his alone to do. And in another light, conjoined with his church, conjoined with his people. Because as you'll see, the text doesn't stop at the work of Christ. It actually goes into the necessary implications of all who follow after Christ and what they do simply by being his disciples. The Christian, uh, having this man as their Christ, this man as the Lord, has a certain way that they live, a certain way that they move, a certain way that they uh, exist in the world that is radically different from any other common assumptions about what it is like to follow Christ. And Jesus is not only going to correct their confession about who he is, as you're going to see next week, he is going to clarify what it is like to be a disciple. But for now, we'll have to stop at this text. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, we thank you for the grace uh, that abounds for you to reveal yourself to us and by your grace show yourself to be sufficient in all things. Lord, we thank you for the teaching found in your text tonight that corrects us, that rebukes us, that encourages us. Lord, we pray that as we wrestle with these verses and we uh, think about the implications of this for our lives, that you would accompany us by the power of your spirit and the grace that abounds for us to see clearly who you are, for us to uh, know more fully uh, what it is that you have done, and for us to live in a better obedience to that, Lord. We ask as your people that you would sanctify us, conform us into the image of Christ, and walk us by the hand, for we are a feeble people, prone to wander and prone to stray. Lord, we thank you for all of your revelation. And Lord, we, we lift up your name now as we gather in worship. Pray this in your holy name. Amen.